Greetings, listeners. JF here, chiming in before the curtain drops with an invitation to an exclusive event with my brother Pierre-Yves and myself for the festive season. Pierre-Yves Martel needs no introduction here. He writes and performs all the original music featured on the show. Together, we've devised an evening of ideas and music delving into the mysteries of the winter solstice. Lords of Darkness and Light is happening on the day, December 21st, 2023, via the NeuroLearning platform. To learn more and get tickets, visit NeuroLearning.com. That's N-U-R-A learning.com. Happy weirding. Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. This week, our always intrepid production assistant, Meredith Michael, joins JF and me on the mic once again. It's always a party when Meredith comes on. If you haven't heard our conversation with her on Hayao Miyazaki's Spirited Away, or our live show at Illuminated Brew Works in Chicago, or our story swap episodes from last year, betake yourself hence and listen. Meredith is the straw that stirs the drink. This time, we decided to do a song swap. Each of us chose a song for show and tell. Meredith's is Vienna Tang's Hymn to Axiom. J.F.'s is Iron and Wine's Passing Afternoon, and mine is Lily Boulanger's Vieille Prière Bouddhique, or Old Buddhist Prayer. Hymn to Axiom is from Vienna Tang's 2013 album Ames. Passing Afternoon is from Iron and Wine, a.k.a. Sam Beam's 2004 album, Our Endless Numbered Days, and Boulanger's Vieille Prière Boudique is a composition from 1917 for choir, tenor soloist, and large orchestra. You might wonder what the logic of our choices might be. We made no attempt to coordinate our picks or plan around a theme, but a theme emerged in the course of conversation nonetheless or rather, several themes. Impermanence, surveillance capitalism, music and misrecognition, and the mysterious affinity between synchronicity and art. Last night I was playing a bit of Count Basie, and thinking about improvisation and its sportive element. There is a sovereign pleasure in listening to jazz or freestyle rapping, the pleasure of hearing the improviser in their present moment making a wager with the future. They set off down a path strewn with accident and dubious incident, a path whose destination cannot be known in advance. And when an improvisation is really swinging, when the wager pays off, when the accidents and indignities of the road are redeemed, the improviser careens ass over tea kettle to a perfect landing. Knew it all the time. Love it when a plan comes together. Only there's no plan. Or, rather, the improvisation itself is the plan. As I say, I was thinking these thoughts last night, 
and thinking about how conversations take root and blossom in this way. The best conversations, anyway. Like the ones J.F. and I are lucky enough to have with Meredith. So enjoy this one. Okay, on with the show. So every now and then on Weird Studies, we like to do a, a song swap, as we call it, where we each pick a song and then we just throw it into the mix and we see what happens. It's always a good time for us anyways. And this time we are joined in our song swapping by Meredith Michael. Hello. Yeah. Glad to be here. Yeah, good to have you back. So the only prep we've done for this was to, you know, share our song choices. I love both of your songs. I have to say that today it's a show about songs that make J.F. Martel cry. That's mm -hmm. what we're doing today. All right. At each of these songs. I cry every time I listen to my song, the song I picked, and I cried to your songs. I shed a tear. I shouldn't say I cried. I didn't weep, but a tear rolled down my cheek and Aww. then got lost in the, the hirsute mess of my beard. Yeah. I was about to say the hirsute majesty of your beard, which oh, is almost the same sure. thing. It's like you took the words right out of my mouth. It is a majestic beard. <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> anyway, so what songs are we looking at today? JF, what did you pick? I picked a song by Iron and Wine. You know, I didn't dig too deep in my drawer. It's a song I've been meaning to discuss with you for a long time. Uh, it's a song called Passing Afternoon by Fire... By Fire and Wine. That would have been a cool name. By Iron and Wine. Iron and Wine is a one-man outfit. His name is Sam Beam. He's a really interesting songwriter. Many of our listeners will be familiar with his work. I discovered him, as did most people, when uh, Sub Pop put out an album of his that consisted of basically four-track recordings he'd done quietly while his newborn child slept in the next room like really quiet little songs such a beautiful record like one of my favorite records of all time this song is from the album that followed that one our endless numbered days which is a line from this song and uh i've always loved this song leslie and i listen to it all the time it's one of those songs that i just keep coming back to it's beautiful and it's got a beautiful rift in it that i, I want to get to it's really simple and it's just a meditation on time and memory and loss. It's just, I, I just love it. That's the song I picked. Awesome. What about you? I picked a song called The Hymn of Axiom by Vienna Tang, a singer, songwriter, musician. And I just want to tell the story of how I discovered the song because I think that it's kind of key to why I can never forget about it because it did the thing to me that it's supposed to do. But it's a really beautiful song that if you listen to the lyrics and the timbre and everything, you'll find extremely creepy because oh, it is. chilling. Yes. Yeah. But beautiful. Mm -hmm. So how, how did you discover the song? All right. I'm going to get a little personal here. Hopefully that's okay. But um, this was, I think, the fall or winter of 2020. And for those of you who recall, we were kind of in the middle of a pandemic. Um, so everyone was isolated. Everyone couldn't, you know, see each other. And for me, it was an especially very lonely time because my husband had passed away in December 2019. 
So I was in a very, very lonely place. Um, I felt like not only was I separated from all my friends and family, but I'd also lost like the one person who knew me the best in the world. So like what I really wanted was to feel connected and to feel heard and to feel understood. And so this put me in the perfect position to hear this song. I was doing the dishes. I remember I was doing the dishes and I had just Spotify on. I was using Spotify a lot at the time just because I found it really interesting to use its algorithm to suggest new music to me. And so I had it on just playing whatever it thought that I would like. And suddenly I hear this gentle voice say, somebody hears you. Somebody hears you. You know that. You know that. Somebody And I said, what? <laughs> they do? And the song was so beautiful. It had these like hymn-like textures, hymn-like chords, melodies, cadential movements. And I was like, who, who is it? Is it God? <laughs> um, <laughs> and as the song went on, the next verse got a little more full textured. And it kept talking about somebody is gathering every crumb you drop mindless decisions and moments you long forgot. And at that point, I was like, well, I don't know, maybe this is a little invasive, but I'm still on board. <laughs> um, and then at the end of that stanza, it goes, keep them all. And the harmony just snags on that word, this horrible, beautiful dissonance. And at that moment, I was like, oh, no. And all I could do was just listen in horror as it became very apparent that what was speaking to me was not human. It was not divine. It was an algorithm. It was literally the embodiment, the personification of an algorithm that creates targeted ads for you. Uh, that's yeah. what a the Axiom Corporation does. And it just kept getting more and more triumphant, being like, let our formulas find your soul. Um, we will design you a perfect love or a perfect lust. And then it comes back to the original melody. And it's this huge texture by this point. And they say, oh, how glorious, how glorious. Now we possess you. You'll own that. Now we possess line we will build you an endlessly upward world yeah yeah <laughs> so it tricked me and i think it's a perfect song in that if it can do that to you it can show you what it feels like on the inside of that experience you know mm. this is something that people want they want to be heard they want to feel seen and feel understood and targeted ads provide that sense to you. If you're not thinking, oh, this is created by a robot, it seems like some kind of divine intervention that 
you know, it knows me. It knows what mm. I want. And the end of the song just kind of comes back down and says, is that wrong? Isn't this what you want? And so there's a lot more that we could say about it. I'd love to talk about the timbre too, but essentially that's how I discovered the song. And it really kind of changed my life because it was one of those things that so ironic because it was an algorithm that brought me the song. Right. And mm. yet that song is a thing that makes me question whether I want to be involved in these algorithms. So it kind yeah. of became the, the key to its own undoing in a way. Hmm. And in the, the show notes, we'll put a link to the version you sent us, which is a live version where Vienna Tang explains how she wrote the song. And mm -hmm. the song is absolutely about that. And it's, I just think it's a brilliant capture of the voice of control the voice of the spirit in charge these days since the death of Anthropus, a new new boss is in town. His name is Control, or her name, I don't know. Its name. Its it, name is Control. It, yeah. And uh she channeled it. I mean, just the context in which you receive this song that you discovered it, it's just oh my God. What <laughs> what a <Yeah>. trick. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, of course. You know, about the same time that you would have discovered that in that uh, COVID year. I think around then I had a conversation with you about, I forget what, but you brought up the piece of music that I want to talk about today, which is Lily Boulanger, a French composer who died tragically young mm. at age 24 in um, 1918. Right after the yeah. war, right at the end of the war, yeah. Yeah, and this is a piece that was written during World War I. I think it was finished around 1917. Vieux prière bouddhique, old Buddhist prayer. based on a text that's in apparently the Fasuda Maga, translated by a friend of Boulanger's named Suzanne Carpeles. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, who ended up being not only the first woman to attain eminence in France as an Orientalist, as a student of Asian languages and ancient Asian cultures, but also who lived most of her life in Cambodia, playing a fairly major role in the modern transmission of Theravadan Buddhism, a major figure in the transmission of Buddhism in the East, not the transmission of Buddhism from the East to the West, but actually the transmission of Buddhism in its home turf. So hmm. Boulanger's Old Buddhist Prayer is a piece for choir and orchestra with a prominent tenor soloist, so like a high male voice singing a prominent solo kind of in the middle. Wow. 
one thing I'm going to point out right off the bat, which is kind of interesting from a formalistic perspective, is that the hymn to Axiom and the Boulanger Prière Boudique are the same form. Hmm. It's kind of interesting. So one of the most fundamental shapes in music, it's an extremely fundamental shape in music, is what we might call lyric binary form. A-A-B-A, if you attach an, a letter to each section of music, each thematic section, we would have an A section, like a first section, then we would repeat it, and then we would have a contrasting section that we would give the label B, and then we would return to the A section. And an incredible number of songs are in this form. So like I Got Rhythm, for example. I got rhythm, I got music, I got my man who could ask for anything more. And you get to hear my beautiful voice as I sing that. And then you repeat that. I've got daisies in green pastures, something, something, who could ask for anything more? And then having heard two strophes of that same material, if we were counting measures here, that would be two eight measure phrases. Then we'll have a contrasting section. Old man trouble, I don't mind him. You won't find him round my door. And then back Which to A. Just back to, yeah. I got rhythm. I, and like, there's so many songs, like uh, Oh Christmas Tree, for example, has that same shape. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I could just spend all day talking about it. And it's, you know, people talk about like the three-act structure or the five-act structure as a thing that structures narrative. Well, this lyric binary form structures music not in a narrative way it's more of, of a or it's not like a textual thing it's more of a rhythm thing mm -hmm. i mean just sort of think of any kind of shape or pattern that has this um um adam that sort of like feeling of uh something then it's intensified through repetition then we break through the repetition to something new that raises us to a certain height and then there's a simultaneous falling away and fulfillment of that tension. Mm. It's not even narrative. It's just kind of a rhythmic thing. But that basic shape, that fall and rise, is coded into so many different pieces of music on multiple scales. And so the uh, Boulanger piece is quite a bit bigger and more elaborate than Vienna Tang's piece. But it still has that basic kind of shape. And so you were talking, Meredith, about how there's this sort of clash. And as you're washing dishes, you hear this dissonance, this a note that kind of comes in from outside the key. Mm -hmm. And what that does formally is it deflects the path of the music and suddenly we, we're in a different key. Mm -hmm. And that's a typical thing you might want to do in our contrasting B section, not just different tune, but maybe a different key, different harmonies. But also that contrasting section is the drama of it is always going to be trying to find its way home. Mm -hmm. And so in Hymn to Axiom, there's this sort of groping around in this new key and then suddenly as if the darkness is split by a shaft of light we find ourselves launching back into the home key which is d flat major and there's this feeling of illumination of glorious arrival we've sort of wandered through the murk and the dark but here we are and it's a kind of negative apotheosis, almost like a satanic inversion 
of yeah. what we might expect in a devotional composition, a devotional piece of music that would use that lyric binary shape to kind of do a flip, like a pop a wheelie off the end of that B section to arrive at the repeat of the A section. You have this exact same kind of gesture, but in this case, what we hear is now we possess you, the great climactic moment of consummation. Now we possess you. You'll own that. You'll own that. Now we possess you. Ah, <laughs> uh, so anyway, and the boutique does the same kind of thing where the contrasting section is that tenor solo, that high male voice singing very plaintively and brings us back to a kind of climactic restatement of the the basic concept of this, which is a prayer for the safety and happiness of all beings. So it's kind of interesting to listen to these two songs side by side. One, an earnest, heartfelt prayer for the welfare of all beings composed during World War I. And I think there are ways we could get into this if we want to, ways in which you could read this very much as a comment on World War I. Mm -hmm. uh, and then at the same time, this kind of negative apotheosis of capital, of technique. I guess that's where I would start with that, having the same music dramatic shape serving the same kind of end, but what different ends? Yeah, that just draws attention to, I think, the contrast of passing afternoon, because if you were to analyze the form of that, it would be A-A-A-A-A-A-A. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's right, exactly. It's extremely repetitive, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I don't know, there's something about it that did its work on me, too, when I listened to it. At first, like, for the first couple of verses, I listened to it, and I was like, okay, I see what's going on. It's just repeating this one phrase of music over and over and my like musicology brain was just like, okay, I get it. But then somehow by the time it got to the end of the song, I was like almost in tears too. It yeah. was like, it, it made me very emotional despite the fact that I had started out being like, I get it. It, it does have an A-A-B-A -A -A form, but it's in the lyric. Um, yeah. The, mm. the melody is just a conduit for this lyric but it's there's there's more than two A's. There's A A A. You're going through the seasons, but when you get to the fourth verse, suddenly it goes to the first person. So I guess I'd have to explain the song to, to make sense of any of that. Um, Why don't you? Yeah. Yeah. So the song starts with the lines: "There are times that walk from you like some passing afternoon, summer warm the open window." of her honeymoon. There are times that walk from you like some passing afternoon Summer warm the open window of her honeymoon And she chose He's talking about a woman. So it's a man thinking or remembering a woman or thinking about, you don't really know, telling a story. And uh, it's kind of weird. It has a lot of um, familiar tropes in it, like images that that you might recognize, a kind of Southern Gothic kind of world. He often kind of sets his songs in. And it's a woman who's, you know, doing her yard work, doing her work around the home. And he's just simply describing this and her the choices she's made. But there's always this, every time the new verse begins, he comes back to this thing about time passing. So the first line of the first verse is, there are times that walk from you 
like some passing afternoon, second verse. There are times that drift away, like our endless numbered days. And then there are sailing ships that pass, all our bodies in the grass, which I find to be a beautiful line. And then the real clincher of a line, there are things we can't recall, blind as night that finds us all. And then there are names across the sea, only now I do believe. But at this point, at the end of the fourth verse, he suddenly switches. He's not talking about her anymore. He goes to the first person. My hands remember hers rolling around the shaded fern. So suddenly you know that this is a, a lover of his, a woman that he was in love with, that he's lost touch with, or who knows where he is. Maybe he isn't even alive anymore. <laughs> and then he's remembering, suddenly he's casting, the voice casts itself into this woman's life. And to me, that's what really opens the song up at the end, where suddenly it becomes really personal and very moving. And the last verse describes this woman as she's married to another man she'll keep doing her thing they'll love each other knowing that sorry i'll get a little choked up every time i think about it that um deep down we're all alone right that um, you know a baby sleeps in all our bones so scared to be alone a baby sleeps in all our bones so scared to be this beautiful meditation on impermanence to me, which is why I it fit with the other two songs for me, because it's a very earnest kind of meditation on impermanence, on loss, on time. And I think that the songs you chose are as well in different ways. Vieille Prière Boudique is about coming to terms with impermanence and then affirming within that a kind of prayer for all beings. Yeah. Whereas the hymn of Axiom is about an entity that has figured this out and his give, it's giving us a sense of permanence. It, it's trying to annul this sense of impermanence in us by giving us what we want, which is permanence, which is like being in its fullness, in its unchanging fullness. And of course, it's a trick. So I just thought that the three songs reflected on this theme of transience or impermanence in different ways that and yeah and I do think I still think that lyrically speaking the form is not that unsimilar it adopts that shape as well so hmm. I can see that because there is that kind of sense of a return like the going out the textual equivalent of that B section mm -hmm. would be that switch to a first person yeah. Or the change of perspective that accompanies yeah. that, which completely reframes everything that's come up till now in this song. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's only for a few lines. And then we're right mm -hmm. back at the end to her, to the, the other character. And he's disappeared again. Yeah. The last lines are her and her husband. They'll kiss as if they know a baby sleeps in all our, our bones, so scared to be alone. So there's the same kind of opening up at the end and then back to, hmm. yeah. The form of this kind of reminds me of like a lot of, Baudelaire's poems where he'll give you like just a bunch of images of things and they'll keep coming back perhaps but then he doesn't like give you what it's about until the very last line and suddenly yeah. everything like becomes in focus so yeah it was very effective I think maybe that's why I got so emotional at the end because it's like okay well now this actually makes some sense there's some perspective from this yeah I get the sense of a disembodied voice, like a voice of someone, a man who's passed away, maybe remembering. He's telling the story in flashes of memory, like little snippets of this and that, you know, moving across time. It does a lot of weird things. Like it, 
there's a, a seasonal kind of structure to the verses. So the, in the first verse, you have a reference to summer, and then in the second verse to autumn, and then weirdly in the third verse to spring, mm. and then in the fourth verse to winter, which I find is that's the rift, right? The seasons are out of order. So we're not in linear time here. We're moving through a space of memory and uh, a kind of almost kind of cinematic space of images coming and going, almost like a bardo state. Mm. Um, yes. And, and you're seeing all of these fragments of a life. And I think that we're cued to that by the fact that the seasons aren't following the proper order of things. Mm. Um, so it's, it's just a fascinating song. I mean, I mean, his, Sam Beam's real strength has always been lyrical. Like he's an extremely good lyricist, a true poet. And I find in this song, everything is really intentional, but it's weird. It's, it's a, yeah, you're right. It has a symbolistic or like a, a Baudelarian kind of quality to it. I think that's a good observation for sure. I love the idea that this is like rumination in a bardo state. Right. That the voice of this song might not even be that of a living person, could mm -hmm. be a ghost, that this is a haunted song. And that to me really links up with that aspect of the music that Meredith mentioned, which is if we were going to stick a, a label to the form, it would just be a, 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 a. Yeah. Not only is it the repetition of the same strophe of music again and again and again, but also the first thing my ears picked up when I started listening to this was that that little snatch of melody sounds like one quarter of a song. It sounds yeah. like the last turn of a much longer articulated melody. Mm -hmm. The way that it kicks off on the, um, the technical term is the subdominant, the four chord, the chord built on the four scale degree, which by the way, if you ever want to give your music a strong hymn-like flavor, our ears are always going to hear a movement to the subdominant mm -hmm. as being a kind of prayer movement. Mm -hmm. uh, if you think of like what's called an amen cadence, like the way you, you might end a traditional Protestant hymn would be not on the usual five one or a chord built on the fifth scale degree going to the tonic or home chord five one cadence but a four one or subdominant to tonic cadence is so coded with church in our ears we can't help but hear church when we hear that adjective we might use here is plagal. That's the word you would use to talk about any kind of motion that veers strongly towards that fourth scale degree chord. The plagal motion in Hymn to Axiom is clearly intended to evoke prayerful associations, right? Mm -hmm. In the Iron and Wine song, it's perhaps has some of that, but it also has a sort of a certain feeling like within a longer song form that we are gathering our energy towards one last push towards a final cadence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The thing about the song that makes it stick in my head forevermore is because you never really get that cadence because exactly. every single snippet of melody... It just like goes up to the five until you want it to resolve into the one, but it never does because it just resolves back into its own self. So it's, it's an open-ended song mm -hmm. that could go on forever. 
forever and ever. Yeah. It's been playing yeah. in my dreams because there's no <laughs> end to it. Yeah. Um, That's so why it, you said that on the Discord. This is going to play in yeah. my mind now for a week. Yeah. It's true. You're right. It's not, it doesn't resolve. Yeah. And it kind of enacts its own idea of memory, though, because it makes it stick in your memory. Right. I think. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. It sticks in your memory because it is perennially unsatisfied and unsatisfiable. Yeah. yeah well, like like samsara, right? Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> mm. You know, something that always strikes me about ghosts, when I hear people talking about ghosts, the sadness of ghosts is that they're sort of, I mean, at least by one very popular reckoning, it's almost like a tape recording that is yeah. just stuck on a kind of loop. Yeah. There's some trauma or something that's left this psychic wound that now is a part of a total environment and it's yeah. manifested in a spectral figure that is helplessly repeating the same gesture again and again and again mm -hmm. and again, which is why it says I like so much that idea that this is rumination in the bardo. Yeah. You know, the shape of the thought in this music is the shape of a mind that turns endlessly, revolves endlessly, but not through the same image, but through endless prismatic images that kind of form and reform mm -hmm. uh, like soap bubbles. Mm -hmm. And so we have another theme that's common to our three songs, which is the theme of ghosts. Um, here we have uh, what we're construing to be kind of a literal ghost remembering his earthly existence. There is mention of spirits in the Vieille Prière Bouddhique. There are mentions of, uh, like, the prayer includes spirits and the ghosts and of the gods. dead. And gods. Yeah. And then, of course, the hymn of Axiom is uh, basically sung by a ghost as well, but the ghost in the machine ghost, you know? So there's something ghostly about these songs, too, that mm. bring them together in an interesting way. Something about disembodiment. Yeah. Something about... Maybe something that speaks to our times, you know, and uh, it's funny that you mentioned COVID at the beginning, Meredith, because I think that was a time in our, in our generation, our lives, in this, this moment, this historical moment we find ourselves in where a lot of people felt quite disembodied, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there's something about the technical epistem or the machine in which we're all ensconced now that seems to tilt us constantly towards a kind of disembodiment. I don't know. There's so much to discuss now. You know, you you just reminded me of a a song episode that we released. I think it was in that same general period, early COVID period, where we talked about uh, lilac wine. Yes, and yeah. and this is just my interpretation of that song. But a, you know, a way that I interpreted it was as a kind of a certain kind of cruelty in those moments, and you find it not just in songs, but films, TV shows, novels, whatever, where there's a misrecognition. Right. Well, you know, like actually we started off, Meredith talked about a kind of misrecognition. Right. Washing the dishes, listening to a song that seems to be promising one thing and delivers something quite different. But like, you know, where lilac wine makes you feel like you have a vision of your absent lover, but when you sober up, it's just you and a hangover in an empty bottle. Yeah. Or, you know, I'm thinking of a film I didn't like very much, the Steven Spielberg Minority Report, PKD adaptation, which, if memory serves, stars Tom Cruise. And Tom Cruise plays a police officer who has lost his son. 
and he obsessively rewatches these kind of three-dimensional holographic videos that mm-hmm. that you can have in this future society and it shows him clearly just trying very hard to believe that these holograms are his actual son yeah and it's some typical spielberg shit this is actually something i kind of hold against spielberg he's so good at pressing your buttons it's like he can find the the cry button and just mash it (laughs) and that's definitely a moment that like fucked me up a little bit but it's just like that trope the trope it represents of a kind of misrecognition it could be a technological misrecognition as in that example or in the axiom example you know what i'm saying yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely yeah that there's something about ghosts that requires us to go there because what is a a ghost is never the actual person right that there's something like uh, something repeating and part of reckoning with a ghost is to realize that the person is gone that the image that's there is not them right yeah often that has to do with that's a part of i guess what mourning or grieving is about. I think in psychology, they sometimes put this as you have to figure out how to integrate this trauma into your narrative of your life. So it's like turning this thing that you're stuck temporally on into part of, yeah, I guess it's recognizing impermanence. Mm -hmm. This reminds me of my favorite TV show of all time, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Um, (laughs) And the very first episode is focusing on the this commander Cisco of the this space station, and he gets caught in this like wormhole where there are these beings that the people of the planet nearby consider to be their gods. Um, but these beings that live in the wormhole don't understand time; they exist outside of time. And Cisco is in there; he's trying to explain to them like what linear time is, and they're like, "Nah." And then eventually they're like, you don't even understand linear time. And he's like, what are you talking about? And they're like, they basically show him the inside of his mind. And what is inside of his mind is the moment of his wife's death. And they're mm. like, you exist here. And he's like, oh my gosh, it's true. I I wow. exist here. I don't know. It's like trauma or losing someone can kind of make you not even exist in time anymore mm-hmm. in a weird way. Mm-hmm. So, and yet... I don't know. I, I think that maybe that's not just all illusion because even in the song Passing Afternoon, you know, it keeps talking about how even the things that we don't remember are not gone. Like the ground yeah. remembers her. She may not remember the ground, but it remembers her in some kind of yeah. way. Yeah. yeah. Or that they'll kiss as if they know. Yeah. So at the end when she kisses her husband as if they know. I, I just love that because... That means they kind of know. Their kiss tells us that they know, but they don't. Like there's an unconscious aspect or there's more to us than what we are aware of. Like the Mm -hmm. guy in Deep Space Nine, I've never watched the show, I'm sorry, (laughs) but who um, realizes that he exists in this other time and that is where he is, Mm -hmm. you know? And so in some sense, he knows that because it's him. In another sense, he's kind of living in the dream of linear time. Uh, where you think you're past, but you're still in that moment. I think we all have moments like that where, I, I mean, I, okay, this is this is a lot less um, personal or, or a lot less, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Gr- grave. Uh, but, you know, there's sometimes in life where you suddenly become aware of time and it, ha- it doesn't necessarily happen in dramatic moments. There are moments, I remember once um, 
I uh, was with a friend of mine in high school, and it was the, the, the morning after a party we'd been at, and we we're just chatting. And I remember thinking, I'll remember this. Like, I, I became aware of time. Mm-hmm. And uh, my mind keeps going back to this otherwise completely unimportant, insignificant moment. When I lie on my deathbed, I will see this moment again where all that happened was that I became aware that nothing was happening. <laughs> That's that, that just, there was nothing to think about at that moment, but time passing. Uh, and there are other moments like that in my life, like uh, a feeling of a particular street corner where nothing special ever happened to me. But for some reason, I kind of put a pin when I was there once and I keep going back to it. And in a sense, it's like I'm still there. I almost feel like if I just did something, said the right freaking incantation to Cthulhu or something, I would suddenly be back there and I'd have to go through all those years again. It's that real to me, you know, those totally insignificant moments that have this tremendous reality to them and presence to them that if I think about them, I just disappear. I I won't even be in this room anymore. I'll be back there in a weird way. Um, and yeah. so that can happen with moments of great loss or or maybe moments of great joy in life, um, like a wedding or a birth of a child uh, or winning the lottery. I don't know. Uh, but it can also happen with the most insignificant moments, or maybe that's just my life. <laughs> um, but yeah. um, it's really weird, you know? I like thinking about these different kinds of experiences of time because... It's true. Sometimes I have felt closer to certain points of my life that are quite distant, if you're thinking in terms of like how long ago it was versus like yesterday. I think y'all have talked about this before, where like certain periods of your life have a kind of aesthetic flavor to them that you don't really discover until later. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I've, I've been feeling, maybe not right now, but like last month, I was feeling this connection to that time of my life when I actually discovered this song and just thinking about this kind of, I don't want to say nostalgia, because I don't know if I really feel nostalgia for like feeling lonely, but but there's just this very interesting kind of flavor to that time of my life that I don't even really know how to describe other than saying that at certain points when the weather becomes how it became, I feel very close to that time. It's interesting.
This reminds me of my favorite book, Change My Life. It's a book called Box Cycle Mozart's Arrow. It's by a musicologist named Carl Berger. And I think it was actually inspired by another book called Times Cycle, Times Arrow. And it's about like. Times Arrow, Times Cycle by uh, Stephen Jay Gould. Yeah, exactly. Mm. It's about like geological time and deep time and the idea that the world, the earth, the universe has gone through all of these different periods that we can kind of figure out traces from, but we really have no way of really understanding it because it was so, such vast periods of time that humans didn't and couldn't exist. And so the book Box Cycle Mozart's Arrow is talking about this kind of moment in history around in the 18th century where humans' perspective of time shifted quite dramatically mm. from a kind of medieval view of time as completely cyclical, right? Thinking about like the church calendar and the repetition of seasons, so really focusing more on this idea of cyclical time. And then in the modern era, this idea of time is an arrow that moves inexorably forward and you can never really go back. It's always just continually moving and leaving the past behind. And yet at the same time, there's this incredible push to preserve the past as well. So um, he's talking about how this manifests in the music. So if you listen to Bach's music, for example, he writes fugues and, and types of forms that have cycles. So like the theme will just come back again and again, and it doesn't necessarily matter in what order these things happen. Just like in your Iron and Wine song, it doesn't have the seasons in the correct order, but it doesn't matter because they're always going to come back again and again, regardless. Um, so box music is kind of like that. And I think that Iron and Wine signing is too, because it has this melodic figure that comes back again and again, very cyclically. So drawing attention to the ways in which you can go back, you can yeah. exist in a time that doesn't necessarily just move forward. But in Mozart's music, sonata form, for example, I'm not going to explain it, but essentially it also operates on this principle of departure and return. So you have a theme at the beginning, and then you go off and have a development where it does these other things. And then when the theme comes back, it's all the more impactful because it's already familiar and it feels like home. And so it really matters in what order you put these things, kind of like this A-A-B-A kind of forms of the other two songs. So it is kind of more of a, a narrative structure, more of a, yeah, arrow structure. Linear, yeah. 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 That's a great thing to bring in because actually what's one thing that's really interesting about the Vieille Prière Boudique is that it is, as I say, in this kind of long, drawn-out, large-scale AABA lyric binary form, but also it maps that shape onto sonata form. Or it uses sonata styles, uh, sonata-ish ways of articulating those different sections and giving them a sense of dramatic heft. So like one thing that's really central to a sonata form, and for people who don't know much about classical music, the sonata form isn't just any form. It's the most prestigious, most prevalent, most powerful form used in instrumental music from the late 18th century into the early 20th century. It's a remarkably effective way of binding time. You know, because the idea of like time's arrow, the idea that time is 
a series of events that can't just be relayed in any order, where there's a cumulative logic to their progression, where there's a sense of a direction and a telos. All of those things presuppose a certain kind of engineering of time. Like this is a something that an old teacher of mine liked to say by analogy with like building suspension bridges. I don't know anything about how you build a suspension bridge, but my understanding is that over time, engineers became more and more adept at throwing spans over wider and wider stretches of water, right? And the idea is that your engineering has to be up to the challenge of spanning a wider and wider stretch without collapsing. And there's something analogous in composition and music composition that you want to think of ways of occupying wider and wider spans of time without the thing breaking down, without it sounding like just one damn thing after another, without it sounding incoherent or merely repetitious. And the sonata form is like this engineering blueprint that allows you to do that, to occupy big chunks of time. And one way that it does that is by managing... For one thing, tonality. So I've been talking about keys and so on, and I don't want to get too deep into that, but like uh, managing your expectations about leaving home, quote unquote home, like your sense of what sounds like home tonally, what the home chord would be, what the destination pitch would be, your largely unconscious sense of home is disturbed when you move away from home, sonata forms and similar forms that are occupying larger and larger intervals of time and spanning them give you a sense of a meaningful trip out and a meaningful trip back. And these forms allow you to emphasize, you know, points of departure, points of arrival. So the sonata form gives you what's called an exposition, which is where you hear all the thematic material, the themes, the tunes that you're going to hear in this sonata. You'll very often, especially in the classical period, will repeat that exposition. Then you'll have what's called a development where whatever themes you've already heard, maybe you've heard them twice because we repeated the exposition, get all kind of jumbled around, mixed up, and you increase tension. Like if we're defining a trip out of home towards terra incognita, somewhere new, somewhere we haven't been before, that'll happen in the development and that will cause a certain kind of tension, like a musical tension that rises to a point. And then we're going to resolve that by what's called recapitulation, which is where you recap the exposition, you hear that exposition material, but now everything is all kind of squared away, tidied away. It's within the same key center. We have a really strong auditory sense of coming home. Anyway, the Vie Prairie doesn't work exactly like that. As I say, it's an AABA shape, but you can kind of map the sonata form, exposition, exposition, repeated development, recapitulation. That can map pretty easily onto an AABA shape, right? And Boulanger does that for example like that big tenor solo the the high male voice a very expressive beautiful plaintive cry for peace for all beings and it's also the moment where we really get the sense of like oh this shit was written during world war one because there's a line where it's just enumerating all of the different kinds of beings that are being prayed for men and women, you know, immaterial spirits and and creatures with birth, gods, humans, and those that have fallen, 
and on that line, those that have fallen, the music sounds different. It gets more chromatic. And actually, it's the one moment where the music does a little bit of text painting, where the shape of the music kind of relates to the idea of the word. So on Fallen, we hear this entire, the whole orchestra uh, kind of droops downwards. Mm -hmm. And it's this tremendous emotional moment of memorializing the numberless dead of World War I, which of course at the time this was composed was not yet over. And this is the emotional high point of this piece. And then we return to what is audibly a recapitulation of the first strophe of material we've heard. So it has that kind of sonata machine for pulling us through non-reversible, non-shuffleable time. This is actually a piece of music that really is doing a time's arrow kind of thing. It's giving us a shape, a shape of a prayer that rises in pitch to a particular prayer, a prayer not just for all beings, but for the numberless young men who have been put through the meat grinder of World War I. Yeah, that's beautiful. And so, yeah, it's a way that composers can use that sense of time's arrow to do powerful things emotionally so and but very different from the extraordinary emotional power of that iron and wine song which is doing as Meredith says brilliantly time cycle well i think they're both both the uh, old buddhist prayer and the iron and wine song are trying to do something similar in the sense that they're trying to recapture cyclicity within linearity in a weird way like what's mm. like in, in a sense i think what the bodhisattva vow is right which is what essentially that song is referring to it's referring a prayer for all beings it's a a bodhisattva move a bodhisattva jack move and um <laughs> and so what it's what it's doing it's like recognizing impermanence is embracing linearity to a certain extent because it's recognizing the yes. irreversibility of of loss and at the same time it's trying to recognize that and affirm that but recapture meaning despite that right because the fear for the quote unquote medieval mind that relies on cyclicity this was this is what made the church uh, so scared when Galileo started pointing things out about our solar system was that if we lose a cyclicity, we'll be thrown into uh, a, a, a null space, a, a nihilism, a kind of a, a negative space of unmeaning. It's what Shakespeare refers to in Hamlet with the line, time is out of joint. If time falls out of joint, things fall apart, right? Uh, time has to be held in its joint so it keeps moving in a circle. What happens is what Meredith was talking about earlier, about that 19th century moment where suddenly we, we are no longer able to deny linear time and its ontological realness. And a part of that is Darwin, I think. When Darwin comes out with the origin of species, suddenly people have to start thinking of the human species in terms of these big, vast expanses of time. But before Darwin, you have Kant, and Kant was the philosopher who conceptualized linear time for the first time. Uh, he comes up with the straight line of time. Time moves in a straight line infinitely. This was 
not something that had been conceptualized before Kant. Even Leibniz, right before Kant, still has a, a theory of time that still uh, hinges on this idea of privileged moments, like winter, spring, summer, these moments that return and that bring us, you know, always back to A after we've moved on to B or whatever. Whereas Kant gives us a time, basically what Kant says is there are only ordinary moments. And he means ordinary in the geometrical sense. In a Cartesian graph, you have an infinite number of ordinary points, like there's nothing singular. Until you draw a shape, then you can start seeing vertices that become privileged, but those are just completely relative to your construction of a shape in the graph. Meaning that the fall into linear time for Western civilization was, I think, quite traumatic. And I think that the art that we're discussing are different ways in which we have tried to recover, to retrieve sense in that. And I think Iron and Wine is trying to do that. And I think that's one of the reasons why the skewing of the seasons is part of this recognition that the cycle's broken, right? The cycle's broken, but we have to keep trying to affirm meaning within that. Um, I love that Lili Boulanger wrote that piece after writing several psalms, from what I read. Mm-hmm. She, she put a lot of psalms to music, and, and she was very Catholic. But what she needed was a Buddhist prayer. She needed that mm-hmm. to come in because of its bold kind of affirmation of the time that Kant made us conscious of, which in the West we weren't quite ready to face. Hmm. I think that that's one, that's just my way of putting it in this moment. I'm not making a big a big thesis, but I, th- I feel that. I feel there's intuitively that there's something about modern art. And I didn't know Lili Boulanger. She's a, an amazing composer. I've been listening to her work like, wow. And I can't, <laughs> man, the, the, the shit people could get done by the age of 24, you know, before TV is pretty amazing. But I, I feel like she's an exemplar of that modern artistic desire to recover what was lost without uh, falling into any type of denial as to what has been learned, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I was reading an article by Annegret Fauser about her, who's written a lot about Lily Boulanger and Nadia Boulanger, her sister. And she was kind of looking at, you know, what does it mean for her to be a Catholic composer because obviously her faith was very important to her. She was talking about basically that Lily Boulanger didn't really write any specifically liturgical music. It seemed like it was more of a devotional thing for her, except on the other hand, she also really thought of her music as hoping that it could speak to the world and hoping that it could have some political action and some political power and influence. Mm. And to me, that's why her her settings of especially kind of religious oriented music is very epic. Um, you know, it's it's not yeah. it's not simple. It's not small. It's huge, especially this particular one. the Psalms, apparently she used a a very old, like archaic translation of the Bible. So it's kind of, she's reaching into the distant past of her own faith 
and also reaching into the distance of the globe, I suppose, with Mm -hmm. the Buddhist text. So, yeah, yeah, I think a kind of way to kind of recover something from the past that could still... That we need. Yeah. That we need. Yeah. The ideal performance of that would be all beings joining in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It would be like sung on all planets. <laughs> it would be, you know, like the universe yeah. itself would be the resonating chamber. Which is a very Catholic idea, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, like the idea of, is the, the liturgy is sung by the angels at the same time as the priest and cats, that, that the whole heavenly host is this idea of like universality of like the entire, the earth itself is singing these hymns. And uh, yeah, you get that kind of global sense, this... Uh, it's really modern, like this this French composer during World War One putting these words to music in a Western musical context, but singing for the salvation or the you know the the liberation of all beings. It has this wonderful. It's very twentieth century. It's very much a mind coming to terms with kind of the global, the yes. the, the fact that we're all together in this. I find that very touching and very, very moving, I should say. Yeah. And, you know, you've started off by saying these are all pieces of music that bring a tear to your eye. The first time I listened to the Boulanger piece, I remember it being overwhelmed emotionally in exactly that way. So, yeah. There's something I particularly found moving about what felt and feels to me like a completely authentic expression of a Buddhist religious sense. Mm. To me, this is music that authentically taps the deep feelings I have around Mm -hmm. my religious commitments. And it was created by a Catholic. And the feeling of that universal stage for a universal sentiment that we were just talking about, part of that to me is the feeling of seeing something authentic in my spiritual life expressed by somebody from a different time and place and a different religious background. Perhaps that's a banal thing to say, but in an era where we are constantly trying to divide the cultural landscape up into tiny little postage stamp sized parcels of territory and where a lot of people might approach a piece like this and be like, I don't know, maybe that's cultural appropriation and we're going to treat religious experience as if it's a kind of personal property. We are necessarily going to distrust any kind of universalizing move. And yet to me, one of the most emotionally powerful things about this piece is the fact that somebody through her imagination, uh, she was able to touch the authentic spirituality of the Buddha Dharma. Mm. The act of composing this thing ended up being an instance of the very thing that the music was about, which is the love of all beings, the love that binds us, that we share even though we're always killing each other and driven apart by our stupid, squalid hatreds and quarrels. But then brought together finally by the algorithm. (laughs) Just in case we're getting a little bit too optimistic here, we should probably get back (laughs) to talking about him of Axiom. Let's pivot. I mean, something about that is I was like, you know, the thing is, it's a very beautiful song. It is. It's very sharp. I don't want to say satire, but it's it's sharp observation. It's social observation. 
like if I had listened to it in another language, I wouldn't have known a thing about it. And this brings up a, an issue that I find very, I don't know, it's interesting a thing about music. Can you lie in music? You know what I mean? Mm. Can you mm. dissimulate in music? I don't know if there would be anything for it but to compose a beautiful hymn for an unbeautiful expression. Yeah. Yeah, another song that I love that does this is a song by Elliot Smith called Between the Bars. Mm -hmm. um, it's also an incredibly lovely song, but it's about addiction. Again, yeah. it kind of shows you the inside of that experience, you know, like it seems like it's a beautiful thing that wants to help you and yet it's slowly killing you. Anyway... Yeah. I think there is something about Hymn of Axiom that even if you didn't understand the words, like maybe not so much today because so much pop music is like very electronically manipulated. It's used as a, a timbral technique and also to, you know, auto-tune people's voices. But the timbre of the voices is so electronic sounding and mm, because yeah. she she used a vocoder pedal attached to her keyboard to like pipe her voices into these other notes to create the illusion of a choir of people but the more and more voices that get added especially the lower range voices it becomes very very obvious that these are not real voices you know yeah. And to me, it gets creepier and creepier throughout the song as all these different voices are added. And it's especially in the album version there, I think, yeah. uh, added some added polyphony and, and different lines in there that really draw attention to this fact that, yeah, um, it's a robot voice. It's a robot yeah. singing to you. Um, it's like, uh, you know, it's like that moment since we're talking about Christianity a bit, that moment where... Um, Jesus ends up in this one village. I can't remember the name, but there's a, a possessed man there. And um, so he draws the demon out and he says, what is your name? And the demon says, our name is Legion, right? And then Jesus famously just casts the demon out and they possess us uh, like a herd of swine, which then run and run off a cliff and die. You see this in films about possession is that the demon speaks in many voices at once. You know, when the demon speaks, there are many voices there. It's always a multiplicity. The demonic is always a multiplicity. something about this song which reminds me of this that there's you can hear there's one voice right there's one melodic one voice delivering the melody but the other voices are way too stuck to it they're just following it way too closely they're just they're completely together in this <laughs> and it, it doesn't yeah. even have the micro discrepancies that make a choir so beautiful is that on some mm. level even if you can't detect it even the best choir in the world there are tiny little differences that make this an analog thing but in this case even though the vocoder is probably analog the point is that the voices are all together when they when she swells the voice swells they all swell and then they, you know so it's got this kind of um 
demoniacal feeling to me, which, um, but always yeah. delivered in the, the sweetest, most loving way, which is, of course, the modality of an effective totalitarianism. You know, the voice mm-hmm. of an effective totalitarianism is the voice of, you know, some department store voice. It's very seductive and very kind and very, you know, compassionate. And it's all about empathy and it's all about, you know, giving you what, isn't this what you wanted? Here's more mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think she just nailed that something that makes me so queasy and so um, creeped out by the commercial culture of our times, the way we're spoken to. I there's, I just can't stand it. I can't stand somebody calling me from an insurance company and calling and using my first name. I know it's, it makes me sound old fashioned, <laughs> but it just freaks me out. Like that's not something you can do, asshole. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The, the kind of friendly voice, like, uh, you know, totalitarianism with a fucking happy face slapped on. This is what we live in now. And it's just driving me fucking nuts. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. I hate <laughs> the one thing in the world that I hate the most, maybe not in, that I hate the most, but that is so omnipresent in our lives that I just can't stand is advertisements and commercials. It's like, yeah. I can see you trying to manipulate me, trying to trick me into being like, oh, this thing is all cool, but it's all, it's all a show. I, it just annoys me so much because it's like, I'm not going to fall for that. And yet you keep trying. Yeah. They'll never anyway, give up. <laughs> I, just going off what you're talking about, like with the totalitarianism of the, of the voices being all stuck together. I had another idea about how this song well, not even not that song tricks you, but how algorithms trick you, which is one realization that I had about Spotify, which is that it not only imitates the divine in that you feel seen and you feel heard and you feel understood, it also masquerades as the other kind of the divine, aka divination, um, mm. which is dependent mm, yeah. on true randomness and... Yeah. The algorithm abhors randomness. And this is why I stopped really using Spotify to discover new music, because I realized it just gives me what it thinks I want. It doesn't give me things that are actually really new and things that are very different from what I already know about. And that's what I really wanted. I wanted to be able to find stuff that I had no connection to whatsoever. Yeah. And so... It's kind of interesting that algorithms and these kind of, you know, an AI to like chat GTP, it it doesn't give you anything new. It only gives you things that already exist. And yet, even if it it seems like it's new information to you, is it really? Yeah, it's just a reconfiguration of the furniture in the room, right? It's just constantly reconfiguring. It's true. And, you know, in a... Strictly speaking, in a digital world, there is no randomness. There's only programmed randomness, which is not real randomness. It's not the randomness of events intersecting in an infinitely complex analog world. That's not the same type of randomness. It's a calculated randomness. And of course, the randomness is entirely guided by probabilistic models that are designed to track who you are and then feed you what what you want. And as Alan Moore famously said, you know, the artist's job is not to give people what they want, it's to give people what they need. 
And what you need often is not exactly the next song on the playlist of, you know, that give you that particular affect that you're obsessed with because of the frame of mind you're in. Maybe you need something very different. And that something very different is something that you might discover through a synchronicity in everyday life. And I'm always very wary when people report synchronicities online because it, I don't think that they're possible. or Even when they do happen, they're disappointing because... It just seems to me like the entire point of the internet as it currently exists and its current iteration is to generate the semblance of synchronicities. That's what your Amazon book recommendation section is all about. It's trying to mimic the moment where you go to the library looking for a one book and then somehow find another. It's trying to do that, but it's doing it artificially. It can't do it for real because nothing simply happens without having been program to happen <laughs> you know it's, and it's uh, very, yeah it's very difficult to tell the difference between a real synchronicity and a fake synchronicity it is you know and, especially and, and, yeah. and it's and, and yeah. it's perhaps analogous to the difficulty telling the difference between a beautiful hymn sincerely intended as a devotional song and a beautiful hymn intended as a chilling dystopic reflection of surveillance <laughs> capitalism right you know when i said can you lie in music? One of the things about music is uh, Vladimir Yankelevich said, uh, music has broad shoulders. It mm. will accept almost any meaning. You know, it's not like, doesn't work the same way as language. And so if you have, like I'm thinking of something from classical music, that's kind of similar to the move that Vienna Tang makes in Hymn to Axiom, is this parodic Amen fugue in the French composer Hector Berlioz's Damnation du Faust, which is his version of the Faust story. Berlioz had a personal grudge against a certain kind of archaic fugue that used to be very common in Catholic worship, a fugue, like a contrapuntal, a polyphonic piece on a single word, like Amen. So that everybody is, instead of singing words, they're just singing Oz and men's <laughs> yeah, and right. Berlioz is like, you know, sound like a bunch of barnyard animals. And it, to him, this was like a ridiculous inversion of what a true song of praise should be. He hated these fucking things. He hated fugues on Amen. And so he composed one that's kind of a perfectly well-behaved polyphonic piece. If you sang it in a church without telling anybody that Berlioz wrote it with a funny look on his face, nobody would be the wiser. Except there are little hints in there, like when the basses go, Amen, 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 over, <laughs> uh, like for a long time, and it right. sounds ridiculous. But you have to kind of notice that, right? The fugue form itself, the actual musical form, it has broad shoulders. It can accept Berlioz's ridicule, and it could also accept honest devotion in somebody who doesn't know the story behind it. Same right. thing with that hymn to Axiom. It's only 
when you really listen carefully that you start noticing little discrepancies like the the waxy sonic sheen of the voices not enough imperfections to make it actually sound like a human choir and to loop it back to synchronicities what makes a synchronicity a synchronicity a certain whiff of genuine strangeness a feeling like you left a window open and a breeze from another dimension just passed through it's that quality of something a little bit out there a little from another place something a little strange that you need in order to set you know the if you're a composer and you're trying to do something that's parodic or or sinister by repurposing a seemingly benign form of devotional music you have to find a way of whispering a little bit of strangeness into it right right it's sort of like those movies where somebody says it's quiet too quiet what is what is too quiet? Like it's it as a filmmaker, you would have to find a way of conveying not just a quiet scene, but quiet with some edge of strangeness to it. But if it was a really conspicuous edge of strangeness, it wouldn't be quiet. And so like there's this strange contradictory art that goes into creating something like this where you're playing it almost straight. Hmm. You're reminding me you, of... Uh, you need to create a little edge of the construct, a little place to show you that something was created where it appears natural. Sorry I interrupted you, dude. No, no, not at all. I totally agree. Um, just reminded me of uh, Zizek's analysis of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, um, uh, where he says that, you know, the, the famous Ode to Joy part, and then it's followed by another part that's kind of a parody of the first. You know, he's basically saying that Beethoven engages in self-parody sometimes on purpose to try to like defang the potential misuse of his music. He's like, it's like, oh, I know what the dictators of the future will love. They'll love this part. But then this next part is making fun of that part. I don't remember the details, but something like that. Playing with the subtleties of rhythm or melody or whatever it is, harmony, in order to like just tilt the music towards parody for a second. Like, how do you do that? What does that even mean, parody in art? I love the way you're linking parody or parodic reversals to synchronicity. I find that a very interesting, but very cryptic to me connection. I don't know. There's something there for sure. There's something parodic parodic about synchronicities. They feel like jokes. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. true. They feel like they're making fun of you. Um, my famous, my, my example I always talk about is the time where I had a meeting with uh, the chair of a department at University of Ottawa when my stepdad, who was uh, working at the university, had arranged this meeting because he knew I wanted to make films. He was like, oh, you got to go meet the chair of the visual arts department and you guys can talk about, and I didn't want to go to this thing. Like, I'm like, this guy, this, this is not what I, you know, I, it's the last thing I wanted to do was go and talk to this guy about my aspirations for making movies. But the appointment was set, so I went and I got to the front door of the department. And then at the last second, I'm like, I'm not going to this meeting. So I just turned around and uh, this guy's name, his last name was Aslin. Aslin was his last name, A-S-S-E-L-I-N. And uh, I turned to head back. I was just going to go. I was just not going to show up. Uh, I turned around and then a truck just drives and parks right in front of me. And it's like, it's a company. I've never seen this guy. It's called Aslan. <laughs> it was the guy's name and it blocked my way. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. So then I went to the meeting and it just feels like a joke. It feels like a cosmic joke. And uh, so there's, there's a link there. 
I don't know. You're, I think you're onto something, Phil. I'm trying to put my finger on it, too, because it does seem like there, there is a difference between a real synchronicity and a manufactured well, that's, synchronicity. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's the point we're yeah. trying to make here, which is that a, a yeah. manufactured synchronicity, the type of thing that the guy in the Truman Show might experience, because his entire existence is curated and directed and designed. Um and this is something that's so interesting about synchronicities because some people, the experience of synchronicity, what they want to believe is that there is some kind of plan, right? Um, mm-hmm. That there are people off stage in a control room somewhere with like headsets going, okay, he's going to find his vocation. And, uh, and, but to me, that completely destroys the sense of thinking. That, that to me is the Gnostic prison. You know, that's the archons pulling your, your puppet strings. What I love about synchronicity is the fact that it's random and yet meaningful. So it's a weird thing. And you can't have that. You can't manufacture that. But it seems to me like the shopping experience in 2023 is entirely predicated on the, the manufacture of moments that feel synchronistic, of finding just the right thing, yeah. of connecting you mm-hmm. with just what you need at the right time, of suggesting the perfect book for you to read next, etc. And it's just one way in which the machine, capital M, to sound like a real Gen Xer, the machine tries to give us mystical experiences. I think to a certain extent, our commercial experience is modeled on a kind of religious experience. Um, I'm not the first person to say that, obviously, but I think that's true. I think that the idea is that, and what I love about the hymn of Axiom is that she really adopts a kind of hymnal voice to say exactly what this algorithm would say if it could speak, which is that it cares for us. It wants the best for us. It's giving us what we've always wanted. It's true. This system is giving us what we've always wanted, mm-hmm. but yeah. we're being duped. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it, I think that desire might be something that is key here because in the song, it's talking about giving you the perfect love or the perfect lust. You know, it's not even just that it figures out what you want, but it also gives you more want. The next line is, oh, how glorious, glorious, a brand new need is born. (laughs) Yeah, a brand new need is born. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, it's creating something in you that wants more and more and more and more. And it's like, Maybe a real synchronicity is not really about that. Right. You know, it's it's giving you something that is very much outside of you. Gratuitous. And yeah. doesn't necessarily ask anything of you. Like sometimes I have strange have had strange experiences that seem very meaningful and yet there's nothing to be done yeah. about them. Right. Um I like a few years ago, I heard these like chimes coming from nowhere on christmas day and it was just like this is very mysterious i couldn't figure out where they were coming from it seemed like some kind of message from the outside and yet what was that message nothing Nothing. there was no meaning to it it didn't ask anything of me it just was yeah nothing came of that meeting with that sna fellow (laughs) like (laughs) i went to the meeting and nothing happened (laughs) it was a perfectly you know, 
It's exactly what I'd expected. So it's like, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of the thing about synchronicities is that there's something inscrutable about them, something like Mm -hmm. inexhaustively inscrutable. I might suggest that in that respect, there is a strong connection between synchronicity and art. Because I'm old school that way. I feel like that's what art is. Art doesn't ask stuff of you. It's not trying to sell you anything. It's not trying to engineer something. It just kind of does its thing. Yeah. And what we see in the regime of surveillance capitalism that we live in is the doping out of both synchronicity and art and its transformation into precisely what it is not. Yeah. You know, synchronicity is not about selling you some particular, uh, you know, payoff. It isn't about anything other than itself. But of course, the pseudo-synchronicities engineered by algorithms are precisely there to have some kind of determined effect Yeah, uh, to sell you something. Yeah. The song towards the end, uh, she sings, now we will build you an endlessly upward world. And then in parenthesis, it says, reach in your pocket, embrace you for all your worth. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, so we know what the real point is. Um, mm-hmm. A kind of uh, a satanic mockery of Time's Arrow, that endlessly upward world. I mean, I read that and I was like, holy shit, that's exactly the world of Technic, right? As yeah. Campania theorizes it. Endless, not just production, but like processing. Yeah. It doesn't matter what it is you're processing. The content is indifferent. It's the logic of eternal processing in series. What's the name of that that sound that keeps cascading upwards forever? Shepherd tone. Shepherd, shepherd tone. tone. Yeah, it's a shepherd tone. That's that's technique. Um, yeah. And it's endlessly <laughs> upward. It it reminds me of Rudolf Steiner developed a, a very interesting demonology in his occult system where um, he was talking about two demonic tendencies in us and two demonic entities out there, Araman and Lucifer. And uh, the thing about Lucifer is that Lucifer is always drawing you up. Lucifer is the angel of the shepherd tone, right? It's always like moving up towards more and more ethereality, more and more disembodiment, less and less body, more and more spirit. And I think that there's something to his, and he he kind of had a prophecy, um, that we spent a long time uh, discussing in the class I just did on AI, where he talked about Araman, the return of the incarnation of Araman, but also our Araman's partnership with Lucifer to manipulate humans into, you know, to get humans in on this devil's bargain where we will be, you know, basically stripped of our spiritual freedom and et cetera. And so the Luciferian aspect of of technic is I think what she's putting her finger on in this song, which is like, we're Mm. promising you that the permanence of a disembodied existence, the permanence of, uh, of all your needs being fulfilled, created and fulfilled at the same time. And I think it's, you know, and what is Axiom? Is that a, some kind of insurance company, like an actuary kind of thing? No, it's a, a data company okay. like that's what they and they do. sell they do. data they to collect yeah. they collect the data yeah yeah exactly in the intro to the song in that live performance she says that you can actually access your file on axiom she says and uh, she went and did that and she <laughs> couldn't believe what she saw like how do they know that <laughs> uh, i don't want to look that up neither. but i do remember 
like F- Facebook does this too, which is a- another cesspool of leading you down paths that it thinks you want into more and more terrible places. But I remember back in the day when I actually went on Facebook, I went and found the targeted ad part of my Facebook account. And it was like, here's the things that we think you're interested in. And it listed all these things. And it was like mostly right. But I was just pissed off that a robot thought that it could understand me. And so I just went in and was like, nope, 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 (laughs) nope. And now it just thinks I'm into the most random (laughs) stuff. I did the same Um, thing. And it's just like, I don't want to be told who I am by you. Yeah. Like, you don't define me from these things. Yeah. My identity comes from inside me, yeah. not from whatever you are, yeah. you know. And your identity is not reducible to what you have done or what you have been either. No. Your identity no. is uh, an entelechy. There's something future about it. There's something un- unknown about it, undiscovered, right? Mm. And this idea that we can be reduced to our the patterns of behavior that we've manifested in the past just seems to be... I don't know, just a recipe for disaster. I think the boulanger is kind of touches on this too, because isn't the last line of the kind of repeated section, something like, uh, may everyone move freely on their destined path. Right. It's kind of interesting to think about freedom and destiny as kind of the same thing, but I think it's talking about this kind of future-oriented identity where you are free to become you, whatever that ends up being, and and that is your destiny, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like Nietzsche's become what you are, right? uh, Mm -hmm. My favorite example of that is um, Nina Simone's song, uh, or I know her version of the song, um, Feeling Good, right? Where she says, like... Mm -hmm. She's listing a kind of, it's kind of a litany of things that she considers to be free. And they include like, you know, birds flying in the sky and the dragonflies and that sort of thing, but also the scent on the pine. Well, in a certain sense, you could say that there's nothing more imprisoned in this world than the scent of a pine. (laughs) It is completely (laughs) trapped, but the scent of the pine is just what it is, you know, and it's just what it it's itself and maybe like just being able to become this thing the singularity that you are maybe that has something to do with liberation and buddhism liberation pure and simple if you enjoyed this podcast consider subscribing to weird studies on your favorite podcasting platform you can also follow us on twitter Visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>